Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we spend an hour a week taking a wrecking ball to conventional wisdom and more constructively talking to journalists, activists, researchers, and even politicians who are fighting the good fight, challenging the system and casting a light on all the dark deeds happening in the imperial city we call Washington, D.C., Today, we have the incredible pleasure of talking to Sam Goldman, a professor who is writing about the future of American exceptionalism. But before we get to that interview, Dan and I are going to talk about the recent passing of Donald Rumsfeld, who served as the defense secretary to George W. Bush during and after 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. There was a lot of emotion splashed about after the news of his death on June, June 29th. There were many who ignored the usual grace period before disparaging the dead. Rumsfeld, the flesh and bone realization of the lies, hubris, and brutality of the nation's 9-11 response and its failed wars seemed to warrant no such courtesies. Others stuck to a more conventional approach like the National Review, which said, above all, Rumsfeld was a, quote, fiercely dedicated public servant, end quote. So it's just the two of us today. Barbara is off. Uh, so, Dan, tell me, how do you how did you feel when you first heard that Donald Rumsfeld was dead? Uh, well, I, I don't know that I, I actually had a, a really strong emotional reaction. Uh, I mean, one reason for that is that he's been out of government for such a long time. Uh, you know, we haven't really thought that much about him uh, since his involvement in the George W. Bush administration. And so I, you know, maybe I, I didn't jump up and down uh as, as uh, happily as some people did, uh, but I I was interested in driving home that uh, this was a, a very bad Secretary of Defense uh, when he was Secretary of Defense under Bush. This is somebody who was responsible, was one of the architects of one of the greatest foreign policy blunders of modern U.S. history. Uh, he was also responsible for authorizing the use of interrogation methods that led to the torture of detainees. And so this is someone who not only uh, supported and defended an illegal war uh, of aggression against Iraq, uh, but someone who uh, was personally implicated in the commission of war crimes uh, against detainees. So it's uh, it's important to remember uh, what it was that he did when he was in a position of power, uh, and uh, especially because he never faced any justice for it. He was never held accountable for anything that he did. Uh, I mean, I suppose he was forced to resign after the 2006 midterms, uh, but that's uh, not much of a consequence considering all of the death and destruction that he helped to unleash in the world. And so he, you know, he went off into a quiet retirement. Uh, he died peacefully in his bed. And you know, so I'm not, I'm not interested in dancing on his grave, but I think the reason why so many people were so angry at him and were so uh, sort of, were taking pleasure in the fact that he was gone is the fact that he never did face any real justice. Uh, it's, it's that lack of accountability in our system that then leads people to take what little they can get uh, when somebody dies to, to sort of uh, cheer uh, the demise of someone that they consider to be a criminal uh, because the, the system doesn't actually punish those criminals and indeed uh, tends to reward them. And so I think that a lot of what you saw in response to Rumsfeld's death was an expression of the frustration with that arrangement with the way that that works uh, because we know uh, that the same thing will probably happen later on when Cheney passes away or Bush passes away 
uh, because they will not have answered for any of their crimes either. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a way for people to vent. And you know, maybe it's not the healthiest way to vent, but I, yeah. I can understand why. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, social media uh, is the biggest variable here. Uh, once people heard the news, everybody jumped on trying to uh, come up with the snarkiest, uh, most vehement uh, response uh, about Don, Don Rumsfeld that they could possibly conjure up. So it got very ugly very quickly. I agree with you. I didn't have a very intense feeling when I heard about his death. Um, I did feel some of the old um, emotions coming back uh, from, you know, 10 years ago or so. Uh, and I, some of the memories flooding back about Don Rumsfeld, I think one of the biggest ones, and I don't know how much this had been explored in any of the op-eds and, uh, you know, remembrances in his wake. Uh, but what, and I know you remember this, these briefings that he used to give, the press briefings, the Pentagon press briefings, he was treated like a veritable rock star by the complicit mainstream media at the time. And it was really um, vomit inducing is the only way I can describe it because uh, the Iraq war uh, was very popular. The invasion was popular. Uh, the, uh, the the patriotism and the um, willingness to go along with the administration after 9-11 was in high gear. You know, there are plenty of people criticizing our response to 9-11, but we were in the in the minority and the mainstream media was treating Don Rumsfeld as though he was a not only he was the, the celebrity, the top, or I mean, the, the top civilian in the Pentagon, but a celebrity. And they would cover his press briefing as though, you know, this was a, um, you know, an, 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 an event of entertainment as well as serious uh, information in which we were engaging in a war and an invasion of another country. And so it was kind of it was silly and it was gross. And I don't know yeah. if anybody's really talked about that, the way that the the media uh, created a, the Don Rumsfeld persona in the in the uh, run up to the to the war and in those early years and uh, the way he behaved uh, the, the the jingoistic approach to uh, the national security forum you know that he was engaging in uh, was part and parcel of the lie and he right. kept that lie going as long as he possibly can could. And so we know that on the front end, the front facing was we had the Donald Rumsfeld, you know, this is this this uh, we this is going to be a cakewalk. Um, we're doing the right thing. This is what America does all the way to the back end where we talked to people like uh, Doug McGregor, who had actually uh, briefed uh, Donald Rumsfeld at one point uh, during the run up to the war. And, and, and had really um, recalled the event as him being very stubborn, um, not willing to listen to alternative views. Everything that we know now that it was a failure was wrapped up in Donald Rumsfeld. And um, yeah, I think he does deserve all of the, um, uh, the anger and resentment that he's getting. And I also agree with you that part of it is because he wasn't held accountable. You know, we have uh, we know that Robert McNamara 
and uh, President Johnson both lived out their twilight years, very regretful and haunted by the Vietnam War. Uh, I don't think Robert McNamara ever apologized for his role in it, but uh, it was clear that uh, he was living with the ghosts of the dead and uh, the destruction of that country for years into his old age, where I don't get that from uh, Don Rumsfeld at all. I think he actually doubled down on his um, decisions and his leadership of the policy to the very end. Uh, yeah, he did, uh, and yeah, there there was no sign of contrition. There was there were no there was no acknowledgement of mistakes uh, at any point, and and it was it was that sort of inflexibility that that marred his leadership at the Pentagon, where he would make these uh, kind of reckless or or arrogant decisions without considering the consequences. When the costs of those decisions were brought home to him or were shown to him, uh, he still wouldn't budge, and he wouldn't. Uh, adapt and and it was it was his basically refusal to adapt to the situation on the ground uh, that ultimately yeah. uh, led him to be uh, pushed out because uh, he he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't listen to reason he wouldn't pay attention to to new evidence and so that's uh, and that's that's why I think people are are particularly frustrated with him because uh, you would expect that if somebody were responsible for such a catastrophic error and, 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 a, and a crime on that scale, that there would at least be some reflection or some reconsideration of what they did. And essentially, uh, in his memoir and, and later on in his public remarks, he, he had nothing bad to say about the war. He thought it was all, it was all worth it. And so I, I think that's uh, a, a large part of why people uh, really couldn't stand him and, and were uh, were cheering his demise. Yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, at, at, uh, to a lesser not a lesser degree, but less talked about, are his, is his role in uh, the uh, what do we call the propagandistic uh, mission that had been launched at the beginning of the war by the military and uh, very successful, you know, by all measures. I, and I'm going to refer specifically to what happened to Pat Tillman when he was killed uh, by a bullet, uh, by his own uh, friendly fire in, in the field. And it was covered up and there was an entire uh, mythology launched by the military uh, that he had been fighting the enemy and had died uh, gloriously in the field when it turned out he uh, it was friendly fire. There was all sorts of speculation because Pat Tillman had been uh, skeptical of the war and he and there was just there, there was a lot going on there. And who was at right at the top of the Pentagon was was uh, uh, Don Rumsfeld. And he, 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 to my mind, is responsible for ultimately for that cover up and uh, for all of the um, what do you want to call the the ugliness that came out of that once the truth was known and the Jessica Lynch story, uh, right. which, you know, this has been largely forgotten. But I, I looked it up before we got on the show today because I remembered this was at the early part of the war. Uh, she was involved in an ambush with her fellow soldiers, including two women, one, one of which was killed. She was taken captive for several hours. 
Uh, then she was later rescued from a, an Iraqi hospital. Uh, that too was used as a propaganda ploy by the Pentagon in which they said that she was firing on all cylinders and had, you know, been captured. And, and she, you know, she even testified after that. She says, I am not a hero. My gun jammed. But right. the, the Pentagon was so bent on uh, this being, uh, this being um, uh, exploited for uh, public relations they were sensing that people, if they saw that a female soldier had been captured, uh, that had been put in harm's way in a war of choice in which we supposedly had the upper hand all the way, that that would uh, people would start peeling off in support. So in term, and so they 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 made it out to be something that it wasn't. And again, that's that's Don Rumsfeld. He was part and parcel of the you know, the informational warfare that was going on in the, in the, in those early months. And it was all built around lies and obfuscation and, um, you know, and we, that perpetuated and protracted the war and the support of the war. And so I blame him too, for that. Um, and, uh, those are years that we'll never get back, never get back. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's one of the things that, uh, yeah, that will always mar his reputation. That you know, maybe before he served in the Bush administration, uh, he could have been uh, simply a you know an okay government functionary, and right. no one would have really thought anything about it uh, because of you know, he worked back in the Ford administration and he had had a few roles uh, in later administrations as well, uh, usually informally. Uh, but yeah, he, he really defined his legacy with uh, the, the disastrous management of the war uh, and, and his uh, just terrible leadership. Uh, but moving beyond Rumsfeld, uh, we should talk a little bit about the, the lack of accountability for any failures uh, in our foreign policy. I mean, Rumsfeld is a, 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 an egregious example of that, but he's just one among many. Uh, there, are, there are so many people who either voted for the Iraq war or were involved in the planning and execution of it, who has suffered no professional or personal consequences of any kind, uh, no matter what has happened. Uh, and, uh, and that has also, that extends to every other failed policy that we've had, uh, especially in terms of military interventions, uh, so that every, everyone in both parties keeps failing upward uh, while sowing death and destruction across large swaths of the world. Uh, it's, it's that, that, to me, is what's particularly discouraging about Rumsfeld's example. It, it, even when you're responsible for something that horrible, uh, you, you still basically get away with it, uh, and you, you will always have your own cheering section that will keep your uh, name in contention. Yeah. And, you know, as bad as things are today, you know, it's nothing compared to the cabal that was running the Pentagon at the time of Don Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and, and Douglas Fife and in the early days, Richard Pearl. I mean, these were people who um, conspired to wage a war of choice in Iraq and managed to do it. And we are still there today because of it. And, you know, I look at, 
at Dick Cheney, who was uh, good friends with Don Rumsfeld. Um, they helped each other get to where they were at the time. And I forget who brought in who at this point. Um, but when you look at the outsourcing of the war that occurred uh, in the post 9-11 years, the, the tens of thousands of contractors that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan, which matched our own active duty uh, posture there, man for man, woman to woman, and the billions of dollars that went into companies like Halliburton, for which Dick Cheney was a chief executive there. Um, and you start to wonder, wow, these guys were really gaming the system and for their own profit while they were raging, waging this war uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it kind of makes your stomach turn to know how much money that these corporations were making and, and often abusing the privilege. We have many examples of Halliburton and their, and their satellite subsidiary KBR ripping off the government. Um, building shoddy showers in which our troops are electrocuted or having dirty water uh, delivered to the bases. And this all traces back to um, the cronyism, you know, in the E-ring in which, you know, they're all connected to uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney, you know, in their previous incarnations in the private sector. So, yeah, I, I blame them all for that. And they, they've never been held accountable. A absolutely not. Want to stop there? Sure. Uh, so we're excited to have Samuel Goldman here today. He's the Associate Professor of Political Science at George Washington University and the Executive Director at the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom, as well as the literary editor of The Modern Age. He also has published two books. His first book, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. And his second book, After Nationalism, was just published. So we are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Daniel. Uh, sure. Uh, hi, Sam. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, so uh, talking about your new book, uh, you identify three different traditions for defining American nationhood or national identity. Uh, and you describe them uh, as covenant, creed, and crucible. Uh, the first is that of being the chosen people uh, with a relationship with God, uh, most often associated with, uh, with New England and, and uh, the pilgrims and the Puritans. Uh, the next is creed, which is essentially that of the, the proposition nation America as an idea. Uh, and the last is the idea of the melting pot that forges a nation out of the constituent parts. Um, how do you assess the strength of each tradition today? And what do you think American nationalism in the coming century is going to look like? Well, I think that, first of all, um, I should say that each of these symbols or traditions has a certain element of truth. I don't, I don't dismiss any of them as, as false or pernicious. They capture some areas of American history and experience, um, but not others. Um, I think uh, proceeding in historical order, 
the covenantal model is probably the least relevant, um, at least outside academic and intellectual circles where it remains appealing. The cultural and theological and institutional presuppositions for that kind of Anglo-Protestant identity just no longer exist. Uh, a more plausible model is the melting pot, uh, which sees an American people emerging over time and becoming more homogeneous um, as various immigrant and other groups intermix and create a, a common identity. And there is some evidence for that uh, today, contrary to the fears of some immigration restrictionists, assimilation um, proceeds and by the third generation um, descendants of immigrants tend to be predominantly American in their habits or their identities. But there's a limit um, on that process, which is that in the United States, much more than most other modern nation states, it is possible and even encouraged to retain some sense of ethnic, cultural, or religious identity in addition to a national identity. Um, one way to put this, to paraphrase the political theorist Michael Walzer, is we see a, a hyphen as a plus. So uh, to be a Jewish American or African American or Italian American isn't to be less American, but rather to be more American. And that's what's encouraged a definition of American identity around a creed or set of political principles, um, which had always been latent in certain ways in the American political tradition, but I think was articulated and institutionalized most successfully in the middle of the 20th century um, in the wake of the Second World War. And I think that for all the, the changes uh, that have occurred over the last 75 years, that's still where we are. Um, we are. We are trying to figure out a way to understand what we have in common that doesn't deny or reject the kinds of differences that have become not only sociologically inescapable, but a source of great pride, commitment and inspiration to many Americans, um, again, over the last 75 or 100 years. Sure. And uh, one of these uh, ideas, I guess you could say, uh, about national identity that's uh, sort of enjoyed a resurgence or, or people are talking about it a lot more in the last 10, 15 years is this notion of American exceptionalism uh, and, 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 and the, the competing definitions that that has. Um, Andrew Bisevich, as you may know, uh, mm -hmm. argued in his recent uh, After the Apocalypse that preparing for the future, uh, in his view, means having done with American exceptionalism, which he sees as, uh, as being the, the cause or the source of many of our uh, national ills, because it leads us on these, these missionary crusades around the world. Um, do you think that Americans actually could set aside the sense of exceptionalism, or is it, is it too deeply ingrained in our consciousness as a people? Well, I think there are at least two ways to understand American exceptionalism. Um, one as a, a descriptive claim, the other as a normative one. Um, and I agree with the descriptive version of American exceptionalism. Um, the United States is not altogether unique in every aspect, as we sometimes like to believe, um, but it is different to the classic nation states of Europe uh, and to the 
multinational empires that they mostly replaced. And in that sense, I think, I think we can speak of American exceptionalism. The question is what follows from that. And that's where this descriptive claim tends to become normative, an argument that America is not only superior in itself, um, but has the authority and maybe the responsibility to promote the justice and other virtues that it represents in the rest of the world. Um, and in that respect, um, I'm, I'm very critical of American exceptionalism. Um, I don't think that we can get rid of it entirely. This, this idea of difference is not only, I think, descriptively true in many ways, but is also very deeply interwoven with American history and political and cultural traditions. What I do think we can do, or at least I think we should try to do, is reorient American exceptionalism um, from a, a sort of missionary or crusading interpretation to one that tries to hold up the United States to our own standards and encourages us to be a model to the world rather than a policeman of the world. And I, I think um, in figures like John Quincy Adams, who, who of course is the namesake of uh, the Quincy Institute, we see some suggestions for how we might do that without giving up this sense of specialness that would require us to get rid of too much of what genuinely is good and admirable um, in our history. I have a quick question. This is Kelly. Thank you for coming on the show, Sam. Uh, just to go back um, to what Dan had been asking, uh, we're talking about um, the origins of nationalism, American nationalism. What do you make of um, you know, recent events in this country in which there has been a questioning of the actual, the, the founding itself, and whether at a fundamental level, America is flawed. Uh, where I'm talking about the 1619 Project, I'm talking about other narratives that have come into play in which the very system that, that the country is built on um, might be, it's not only questioned, but maybe even torn asunder uh, with the, the politics uh, of today. How does that play into um, the, A, the, um, the idea that we are this melting pot and that you had mentioned that this is where we are today and grappling with you know, the, the, the different identities that make up America. How do, how, how, do you see that like actually going in another direction and B, how does this play into the, uh, the future of American, uh, American exceptionalism? Will American exceptionalism just deteriorate from, uh, from within? Uh, so this conversation might even be moot because um, people do not believe in the country anymore as, as we've known it. Well, I think that one of the interesting things about the 1619 Project um, and some of these rival narratives that have been developed to counter it is not how different they are, but actually how similar they are. Um, and I have two particular forms of similarity in mind. Um, one is that 
both involve what might be called a fallacy of origins. Both claim that the, the meaning of American historical experience was fixed at some precise point in the past. And then we have to just figure out what it means. So whether it was 1619 or 1620 with the Pilgrims or 1776, there, there's a search for an absolute moment that defines everything that follows. Um, and I just don't think that history or politics works that way. Um, it is important to understand where we've been in the past, but I don't think a point of origin or departure can exhaust the meaning of everything that follows. Another way in which these arguments tend to be similar is that they're extremely insular. Um, they, they don't compare American history or American institutions to international examples, um, a comparison in which I think America comes off relatively, uh, relatively well. Um, and that too complicates this story because I think that when we, we look at the United States in comparison to its, its contemporaries and rivals, um, we're, actually, we're actually doing pretty well. Um, and that refutes or at least challenges some of these radical criticisms. On the other hand, when we make the same comparison, a certain form of American exceptionalism also becomes more clear. And whatever it is that we are that we are doing here in this this vastly extended republic, um, it is simply not a nation state um, in the conventional manner familiar from European history, but also that that includes some important um, Asian examples. Thank you, Sam. I want to ask you a question about your previous book, um, God's Country, about Christian Zionism in America. So, and I, I really like the blurb that they have on the audible version of the book. So I'm just going to read a little bit of that and then ask you our question, because I think our listeners are deeply perplexed sometimes by the U.S. close relationship with Israel and I think that um, it would be helpful if you could elucidate a little bit more of the history of that and also why it's good, why it's bad, um, which your book does obviously in much longer form, but this could be a teaser for our listeners who I know are interested in this topic. Um, the teaser says that some point to the nefarious influence of a powerful Israel lobby within the halls of Congress Others detect the hand of evangelical Protestants who fervently support Israel for their own theological reasons. The underlying assumption of all such accounts is that America's support for Israel must flow from a mixture of collusion, manipulation, and ideological-driven foolishness. So I'd like to hear your alternative explanation. So my, my argument in that book, which overlaps um, with my account of the, the covenantal uh, account of, of national um, American national identity, is that the idea of a parallel um, between the British settlers of North America, or some of them, and later the United States, and the biblical Israel um, is 
a recurring feature of American religious um, and political culture. It, it's, it's not something that was um, made up in the late 20th century um, by Jerry Falwell or other figures of the new Christian right. It, it's not even a product um, of the so-called fundamentalist movements of the early 20th century, although they did encourage it in certain ways. Um, rather, um, uh, Americans have historically turned to the idea of the biblical Israel and later Zionism and the modern state of Israel as a kind of mirror that could be used to explain who we are and what we're doing. Um, and I think that the, the great defect and danger um, in, in many conversations about American relations with Israel is not so much whether they're, they're too favorable or too unfavorable, um, but that this history encourages us only to see ourselves in Israel and in the Middle East, um, rather than to see a very different region, a very different uh, people in a very different situation. Um, and that can lead to errors of many different kinds, depending, um, depending what vision of ourselves we see. That's a very uh, good point. And I want to bounce off of Kelly's question that she asked about the 1619 Project and sort of reevaluating America's heritage and history, I think, a bit. I really like your point um, that we're a little bit myopic when we're doing that and we're not looking at other countries and their histories because one thing that always stands out to me, at least, is that the British Empire literally destroyed and wiped out multiple, I mean, they've, they're responsible for multiple genocides, but unlike the Germans, were never made to apologize to the world for it. And Germany is a country that after World War II and still to this day is so uh, horrified and disgusted by what they did and having Hitler as their leader that I've been told by people um, who are German that um, that they're in danger of losing their language, their culture, and all of the, the beautiful philosophies like Goethe and all of those things because, because they just fo solely focus on Hitler. So I think I'm a little bit scared that that's what's happening with racism and slavery. I believe, of course, we should never have taken those things out of the history books. But I'm curious to hear a little bit what when you said that about looking at the rest of the world, what places were you thinking of that, that were not we aren't thinking of when we're having this discussion? Well, I, I think, um, first of all, um, that Americans tend to assume that European nation states like Germany or like France um, simply appeared in that form neatly divided into squares on, on the map and have always been that way rather than themselves being the products um, of a, a difficult um, and often surprisingly recent history. Um, and we, we ought to think of the United States as an example of state formation and, and consolidation 
comparable to some of those European examples. And I think that um, when um, when we do that, we don't come off so very so very badly. You know, with with regard to um, slavery in particular, which which has become um, a sort of symbol for for all the sins of American history, um, the United States did not abolish was not was not the only um, state that practiced or permitted slavery um, and did not abolish slavery so very much longer later than European rivals, particularly um, in their their colonial um, in their colonial possessions. So I'm not I'm not denying the crimes of American history, um, but I, I think that on a fair comparison, we come off rather better than in some of these more myopic uh, accounts. And, and that, that, again, is why I see an ironic parallel here. Even the criticisms of American history and American institutions, which appear to be anti, anti-nationalist, are actually very national in their structure. And what they've done is is flip the moral valence. So instead of being entirely good and perfect from uh, from the origin, the opposite is the case. Sam, um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I just wanted to ask you a quick question about the current nationalist movement that we've seen under the Trump administration, national populist movement on the right. Um, do you feel that that has a future? And do you feel that was there a tension there on these nationalists in which they wanted to continue the sort of more um, the, the American primacy abroad? Uh, it, fed by that nationalism? Or did you see that that nationalism was actually um, becoming more restrained on the foreign policy front and looking inward in terms of like uh, the, the country and where we should go as, you know, as a people? Was there a tension? I think, I, I, I think nationalism or, or populist nationalism is certainly here to stay for a while if we are talking about a rhetorical style. Um, but that's also nothing new and in some ways, or at least to me, um, the least interesting uh, the least interesting feature um, of these discussions. And if you go back and read um, accounts of political campaigns from the late 1990s and of course before, I, I think um, many of the features of the nationalist revival that are today treating uh, treated as shocking innovations um, are are pretty pretty common, um, and it may just be that social media makes them seem more vivid and present um, than would otherwise be the case. Um, as for um, specific sort of policy concerns, um, I, I hope that it encourages a more restrained and prudent foreign policy. And certainly in politics, um, if people agree with you on the substance, there's no point getting too hung up um, on the principles and motives. Um, so to that extent, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to cooperate and, and you know, share, share um, space in the tent. Um, I do have 
a historical disagreement, though, insofar as I don't think that the disastrous foreign policy of the last 20 or 30 years can be attributed to insufficient nationalism or universalism, which would then suggest that that more nationalism is the answer. Um, I think that people tend to assimilate um, the the Bush administration um, of 2001 to 2004 uh, in a way that is not accurate. Um, I remember quite a lot of of flag waving and classical nationalist Mm -hmm. mobilization in the early days of the war on terror. It was only when the claims that had been made in in particular about weapons of mass destruction were exposed as false um, that this broader philosophical liberal justification um, was was offered. So even um, as I am am happy to join people who think of themselves as, as nationalists um, in promoting a more responsible foreign policy, um, I also am a little bit more wary of the dangers of that kind of rhetoric, uh, which can very easily be turned to different purposes, um, whether or not that reflects a kind of theoretical or intellectual uh, nationalism. Yeah, thanks. I definitely remember that that time period as well with George W. Bush administration, the beginning, the the rah-rah flag-waving era of the Iraq war. That was before the bad stuff happened. That was when we were going there for freedom and to give them democracy, remember? Yeah, um, we forgot that that's what we said at the time, I guess. Maybe that's disappearing into the history books, but that was the rhetoric at the time. I... I'm glad that you brought it back to that, Kelly, with that question, because there's an excellent chapter on war and how that plays into this discussion about nationalism in the United States. So I really want to recommend your both books um, to our listeners, because I do think these ideas are quite a bit different than what you hear in the Washington establishment. Um, and we need more thinking outside the box. I hate that phrase because it's itself thinking inside the box, but it's a cliche phrase. But in any event, these are good books. I think that uh, I'm so glad you could come on the show. And I wish that we had more time because these ideas are so fascinating. And we, I think we all had a few more questions for yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.